Welcome to Activate, a podcast for mobile marketers brought to you by Remerge. Take a short break from your screen and listen to what's working in mobile marketing and what's not, straight from the people who are doing it now. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hey, everyone. You are tuned in to another episode of the Aptivate podcast brought to you by Remerge. I am Tommy. As always, your host, thank you so much for joining us. If you like the podcast, give it five stars. Give it four, too. Four out of five is a decent rating in my book. So if it's just a four, that's fine. But give it some stars. Tell your friend. I'm incredibly excited to have this guest online with us today. She's super intelligent. She's also incredibly patient because this is the second time we're trying to record the podcast. And the first time I had to cancel on her last minute because of construction happening outside of my apartment. So I'm eternally grateful for this person's patience, and I'm extremely excited to have them on the line with us today. Today's guest is none other than Alexandra Kleeman, who is the head of marketing at Spock. Alexandra, how are you? Hi, Tommy. Thanks for having me. I am very good. Thank you. Good. Thanks so much for joining us. And we are in the month of July. You are calling in from where exactly? I'm based in Vienna, Austria. And I stopped counting the time that I have spent in my apartment. What's the status of the world look like in Vienna right now? I think we were quite lucky. We went into some sort of lockdown early mid-March, I would say. We pretty much stayed home for like six to eight weeks, but then started opening up quite early. So I can pretty much do anything I want. I can meet my friends. I've had insane number of picnics these last couple of weeks. I can go to restaurants. I can't do a decent amount of traveling within the country. I actually think we've opened borders to most of the other European countries. So I think summer is good. Insane amounts of picnics sounds really cool. I can't remember the last time I did a picnic in general. I don't think I've done one in like 20 years. So I feel like it's a coronavirus thing. You just hang out with your friends. You're in the fresh air. You feel like there's less risk of getting infected and you just have a good time with the picnic. That's smart. I feel like it might be a European thing as well. In Boston, I don't really go out and see people picnicking often. Maybe you should be a first mover. Yeah, right? That's a great idea. I love it. Okay, so you're in Vienna. How long have you lived in Vienna and what brought you there? I am born and raised in Vienna. I actually never thought I was going to stay here. I always wanted to go abroad. I did two semesters abroad. I did two internships abroad. I think all of my family was just waiting for me to pack my suitcase and leave. And then I stayed because it's a really good city. There your whole life. But you have not worked for Spock your whole life, I would imagine. Could you tell us how you arrived at Spock and, and what your background is like? It feels a bit like my whole life. It's been five years now, which is a fair amount of time, I would say. It is. I think I had an unconventional start for working there. But actually, Spock is also one of the reasons why I still am in Vienna. It's a super international company. So we have 100 people with 30 different nationalities. We speak English at work. So for me, it's pretty much the best of both worlds, being able to stay in the city I love and working in the international environment I thrive in. So that's a really cool mix. My start at Spock was a bit unconventional, I would say. I was looking for a split board. I don't know if you're familiar with what that is. A split board is the, you can ski up the mountain and snowboard down? Yes, that is what a split board is. Okay, cool. I was looking for a split board, which is a bit hard to find if you're female and quite petite, because usually they come in massive sizes. 
and I thought a second-hand marketplace would be a great place to find one. And I didn't find a split board, but I found a job. That's awesome. So you were looking for a split board, you found Spock, and you just immediately fell in love with what they were doing? Pretty much, yes. I love the thought of working for a company that's part of a circular economy. And I just love the working environment. As I said, the team is amazing. The first job that I got at Spock was super challenging for me because it was performance marketing manager. And my previous working background had literally nothing to do with performance marketing. So it was a huge challenge. It was a big leap of faith, both for myself and the team at Spock who hired me. And it apparently worked out just fine. What would you say was maybe the single greatest challenge, right? You have no background in performance marketing. You're thrown into the deep end in this role. What was the hardest thing to learn or to pick up? It's very technical. And I think that was a big challenge for me. I remember having lots of meetings with developers and engineers and always trying to pick up words that would make me sound smart and tech savvy. And I still get them wrong and they still correct me whenever I'm speaking to them. But I think I've learned heaps of interesting and exciting things over the past couple of years. And that was one of the early challenges. I would say that ever since I've been at Spock, working life has been super exciting, but also super challenging. That totally makes sense. But you started as a performance marketing manager. Was that mobile app specific or was it desktop or both? That was mobile app specific. And I was responsible for Facebook, which was our biggest account. Uh, that makes sense. And do you guys offer app and web services or is it predominantly your consumers are on the app? One of our USPs when we first launched in Austria in 2012 was that we were mobile first. And back in the days, classifieds didn't tend to be on mobile phones. So there was a few competitors or incumbents that were on desktop, but it was quite cumbersome because you had to take a picture with your digital camera. Back in the days, people still had digital cameras. And then you plugged it into your PC and then you transferred the picture and then you uploaded it. So it was a really cumbersome process. And we just made that much easier and put it into your mobile phone, which in 2020 sounds like a logical thing to do. (laughs) Back then was actually quite revolutionary. Yeah, I totally hear that. And that is something that's becoming more commonplace now with some online marketplaces similar to yours, right? One of the things I'm curious about, and this might be kind of jumping forward too far too early in the conversation, but whatever. There are a fair amount of online marketplaces at this point, right? Like I know in the US, we have LetGo, we have OfferUp, I think, we have Poshmark, a few others, right, in the US. And I'm sure that's the same case in Europe. What do you think sets Spock apart from the others? Or why why would a consumer choose your product instead of maybe a, a similar one? For me, it's three pillars. One of them is the community that we have. So we initially launched as a local marketplace, which means we were super strongly around a local community and about doing business with your neighbors. We're now a nationwide app, but I think what we kept is this community spirit and the fact that you are dealing with people. It's a peer-to-peer marketplace through and through. Um, The second one is that we are very well aware that e-commerce has brought a lot of convenience to people's lives. And we think that there is a fair need of people to combine the benefits that you have from a circular economy, from trading secondhand, and the benefits that you get from buying something off an established e-commerce marketplace. So what we offer is a buyer protection, meaning you don't just buy something off a random person. You buy something, the money goes into escrow at Spock. And only when you confirm that what you've bought is the way you expected it to be, we will release the money to the seller. Likewise, for the seller, you sell something, 
if you deliver what you promised you were going to deliver, we will make sure that you get paid. So we give you a payment guarantee. It sounds like creating community and creating trust in the whole process has been kind of tantamount to some of your differentiation amongst other, right, Ashbach. And my understanding is you guys historically served as a platform in which consumers would meet with each other to exchange goods. Is that correct? Yes. And has that changed over time or has it kind of stayed that way? And is that predominantly how people leverage the app? We want it to change because, as I said, we want to give people the convenience that they know from e-commerce. And we also felt that the local positioning was what helped us grow and it differentiated us quite a bit from competitors in the market. And as you say, there's plenty, but we still couldn't solve many of the problems that people were facing. So first of all, local deals always mean that you're limited to a certain set of users who live close by. So you won't really be able to tap into the whole pool of users. Local collection, cash payments, wire transfers to people you don't know will in some cases lead to scam. And there's only so much we as a company can do to prevent that. And also, there's lots of cases where people might not be as committed as they first tell you when you're chatting to them. So following through with the deal, if you don't have any commitment because you haven't paid for it yet, leads to no-show rates, poor user experience, you standing at a street corner waiting for the third person to pick up your Michael Kors bag or whatever you want to sell. So there's a few pain points that our users had. And with the positioning that we had, being a local marketplace, we just couldn't solve them. So our decision was, we have 5 million active users in the UK. Why don't we make sure all of these users can trade with each other? So we opened up the app to be nationwide. And we introduced the payment guarantee and the buyer protection that I mentioned before. Wow. Okay, so you introduced these new tools. Do you think in doing, in kind of expanding the breadth of your services, how are you able to kind of maintain a community feel to it? Because you've mentioned that a few times that the community component to this app is important and vital to the way it feels. How do you keep that while allowing users from maybe one country to communicate with those from another? For me, a lot about it is around the fact that it's not an anonymous profile, but you'd have a user profile, you'd communicate, we have a chat function, and you have user ratings, which means, yes, we give you a lot of trust. We are there to support you. We give you this payment guarantee. We give you this buyer protection. But ultimately, a lot of the trust that you have comes from the fact that 20 other users have rated that buyer before. So you would be sure that this is a legit buyer. And I have to say, I'm using the platform quite a lot myself. It is a rewarding experience to get a positive review from somebody else. Yes. And it's important, right? Because you develop that level of trust and it makes it, once you get that positive feedback from someone else, it makes you want to use the product more and more, right? Because it is that creating a second level of communication in which we're almost applauding each other for being good people, you know? Yeah, pretty much that's it. So remind me, so delivery was not always a big part of the app or not even necessarily an offering within the app. As a marketer, right, as you guys started to adopt delivery or being able to order in a more e-commerce kind of style through the app, as you guys adopt this, how did this impact kind of your role as head of marketing in terms of where you focus your time or how you message to consumers? It changed everything, I'm going to say. I think the biggest challenge that we had was that we've had a lot of success in the UK over the past couple of years. We've grown quite quickly. And we've put a lot of budget behind our previous positioning. So the tagline that we launched with was Spock the Boot Sale app. And we later changed it to say Spock the local way to sell and buy. 
So my biggest challenge as head of marketing was everybody who, Spock has become a household name, but everybody refers to us as the boot sale app still. How do I change that? And how do I get that out of people's heads? Because otherwise our product can be extremely sophisticated. Our product can solve heaps of user problems. If users don't know that the product is going to solve this problem for them, they're not going to use it. They're not going to consider it. They might continue using it in their old ways and they might just not understand why we're doing something good to them rather than us pushing them to paying a premium or using a product they might not want. When you guys are developing kind of strategies around some of these new offerings, was there something in particular that helped you kind of really push users to use this new sort of messaging? Was there something that you guys did in particular that really drove people to adopt a new kind of paradigm at which they looked at at your app? It feels terrible to say, but coronavirus has given us tailwind to a certain extent. We've launched our new proposition end of 2019, and we've seen good growth rates since then, but without any major marketing campaigns, and we didn't run any TV spots. We just did our regular online performance marketing. But without a massive awareness push, you're not going to get the message out there. What happened with coronavirus was some people got scared of using the product. Other people kept taking risks. So we saw that people were still continuing to meet up in person to exchange goods with strangers. And for us, that meant a massive risk and a massive opportunity at the same time, I would say. What was the massive risk in your mind? Initially, we had to take a decision whether we were going to tell people to not meet up anymore. And given that at that point, most of our marketplace was still around local collection, that pretty much meant voluntarily telling people, stop using us. Because we didn't know whether they were going to adopt the new proposition. We didn't know whether they were just going to realize that it, it might be risky business and they didn't want to use it anymore, or whether they were going to respond to it positively. And at that first stage, we also didn't really have an alternative to offer them. So yes, we had delivery integrated but they would still have to go to the post office to drop off their product. Oh, okay. And post offices at the time, I think they weren't closed, but it was very strongly discouraged to go there because you had, I don't know if it was the same in the US, but you had like three reasons to leave your place and going to the post office to post a pair of Nike sneakers wasn't one of them. (laughs) That totally makes sense to me. Okay, so you have this massive risk of losing a lot of customers, right? Especially like some of the most valuable customers that are using your app on a potentially day-to-day basis. What is the decision you make, right? Is the decision to do exactly that? Say, don't stop meeting each other in public and wait for things to open up again. What do you guys kind of do? And how do you instill confidence that down the road, people will be able to use your product again? We did it. We decided to use all marketing channels that we had to tell people to not collect items. We prompted them to try and negotiate a longer delivery time or to just hold off from collecting at the moment and asking the seller to reserve the item for them. So we initially just really told them to pause their activity. In parallel, we started to introduce door-to-door delivery. So we partnered with a delivery company and we implemented a web flow that allowed people, allowed sellers to book a pickup time. They could just put the parcel outside, put it on the porch, a courier would collect it, and then would deliver it contactlessly to the buyer. So the entire team was working, I think, 
10 days, pretty much day and night and weekends to make it happen. So from the point where we told people to stop collecting items and to stop dealing on Schwock, I think about 10 days, maybe 14 days later, we launched this door-to-door collection. And because we were also seeing that obviously it was a difficult time for marketing, so we decided to repurpose some of the marketing money that we had provisioned for that period and funded the door-to-door collection. So we funded the surcharge that you would have to pay for the career. By funding it, you kind of made it easier for users to make the decision that they want to do that, right? You're basically saving money on behalf of your consumers. Is that right? Pretty much, yes. We just wanted to make it as easy and hassle-free for them to make that cognitive decision about using delivery as we could. How do you think consumers reacted to kind of switching their mentality? Do you think they welcomed it because... They said, all right, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We shouldn't be meeting peer-to-peer. This is a perfect option for us. Or did you see that there was some pushback still to the idea of door-to-door delivery? It was really successful. We saw a very good uplift in numbers. We even saw journalists reaching out to us to ask about why we did it because they had seen our messages and they had realized that this was a big risk for us. And it actually turned out really well because I think users understood that at this point we weren't looking out for business. We were actually looking out to make sure it's a safe experience. And I think that was very well received. You almost as a brand establish a degree of trust if you kind of call it what it is, right? You say, hey, honestly, we should not be meeting in person anymore. Just stop for a second. Business aside, your health is number one. Because that's kind of what you guys said at the end of the day, right? Is your health means far more to us than us making money based off of you guys exchanging goods. Absolutely. And after all the theoretical discussions that we had around, we are becoming the UK's most trusted marketplace. How do we convince our users of that? This was the perfect opportunity to prove it, I would say. So this was the opportunity that I mentioned before. Massive risk, but also a great opportunity. Yeah, the opportunity to really demonstrate that you're consumer first, right? Like you guys have already done a lot of things to demonstrate that in the nature of some of the mechanisms you built, right? So the escrow component of if I buy an item or sell an item, the money's held and it's guaranteed, right? Which you touched on earlier, I believe. That's an awesome product feature, right? But again, when push comes to shove, you guys said, hey, we're willing to shut down everything so that to ensure that we are not contributing to people getting sick, right? And that's a huge statement. And I think consumers value that massively. Now, I'm curious from a marketing perspective, you have to take this big risk, right? You have to take the risk of informing everyone, hey, basically stop using our products, stop meeting face-to-face, at least for the time being. Where do you deliver that message to them? Are you delivering on every single platform through email, through push? Is this just a complete blanket of the message or are there specific channels that you focused on as the strongest vehicles to deliver this message? We literally focus on everything. So what you said, we use our regular channels, we use push notification, we use emails, we change lots of our Facebook ads to also show that same message. We changed our App Store message to make sure people understand that we have door-to-door delivery and that it's contactless and safe. We even implemented new touch points within the product because one of the learnings that we had was that even if you use lots of touch points already, there's still people who are going to miss out on the message because users don't always read what you send them. I mean, you probably know it from yourself if you're seeing privacy push-ups and privacy pop-ups, you're just going to put them away because you've seen so many of those. 
And I think it's a bit of the same with any marketing message that you send. There's always going to be a fair share of users who just don't read it. Fall through the cracks, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what we did is we went through the process ourselves multiple times and we tried to find all of the touch points where it would make sense for us to tell the user. As in, there's two call to actions. One of them will take you to the delivery flow. One of them will take you to the chat where you would arrange for collection. If you press that button, you would see another message. And then if you were in the chat, you would see another alert message. And it sounds easy and straightforward, but it was actually quite a lot of engineering effort because we didn't have those touch points. That is super comprehensive and it sounds like it is a ton of work. But at the end of the day, you could at least ensure to some degree that you had reached the majority of your consumers, right, with this message. And you had also made them aware that, hey, we got you covered. Did you have to say within this whole program, hey, in in a few days or in a few weeks, we're going to have delivery fully fleshed out so that you can leverage it? Was there like a component of almost like a countdown? Hey, wait till we have this ready and you'll be able to use it. We didn't do it. We probably should have but everything was super, super fast paced. I think yeah, you can think right. about it, but that's a good one. I'm going to note that down for the next pandemic. No, no, it sounds like you guys had everything done perfectly as it is, but you're right. It did happen so fast. I'm curious, and I don't want to keep sitting on the subject of coronavirus, but it's a super interesting use case, right? And I'm curious, you mentioned it happened very fast. What was like the straw that broke the camel's back? I'm curious, right? When did you guys decide, okay, enough's enough. It's not safe to let people go meet face-to-face. Was it once the government had locked you down and that like immediately was, was the impetus for us? Could you kind of explain to me when you just made that decision? I think we had a bit of a head start because our company's headquartered in Vienna, so in Austria. We do have a London office though, so a part of our team sits in London. And in Austria, things happened a little bit earlier. So I think we were two weeks ahead of the UK And there was already quite a high number of infections. So we already decided we were going to send everybody home to do a trial work from home day, just making sure the technical equipment was there. Everybody had a place that they could work from and they wouldn't need any IT support in case we actually had to announce home office for everybody. And then we never returned from that test day because things just developed really quickly. So we already saw in Austria that there was pretty much a complete shutdown with restaurants closing, shops closing, everybody being asked to stay home, offices closing, and things were just moving so quickly. And we felt that this was really, really serious. And I don't know how much you followed what happened in the UK, but I think they were more on the denial side of things that you might know from the US. (laughs) Yeah. um, (laughs) Don't get me started. Let's not go down that. I'll get very angry at my own country if we go there. But yes, very much so imbecilic denial. Yes, I, I know what that's like. And then UK team members started to say they didn't feel comfortable taking public transport. They would rather stay at home as well. And we just realized if our team members don't feel safe being outside, and if one of our countries has already been shut down, then we should probably be quick to move on this one. That totally makes sense. You're on the tail end of it, right? You're like you mentioned at the beginning of this call. In Vienna, for example, things are opened. In the EU in general, things are starting to, if not really getting to the point where they're almost fully opened up. Things are changing back and normalizing a little bit more, we could argue. Looking at it from kind of hindsight, is there anything that you guys would have done differently? And also, I'm curious to understand. Are consumers now really just relying primarily on the delivery and the door-to-door service? We're seeing an uplift that is there to stay. And I think that's a very positive sign because it's a sign for us that the product that we've built is actually one that resonates with the users. 
we're also seeing that other users are back to collecting items. So I think, yes, we brought the product to more people. The adoption rates have increased. But moving forward, we, we want to give users a choice. If you prefer a collection, we're not going to hinder you from collecting items. I think what I would have done differently is probably being even quicker. Because despite all of the very fast-paced decisions that we have taken, there was a lot of discussion involved. Because as I said before, it was still a big risk for us. I think with the knowledge that I have now and knowing that this thing didn't go away, as we might have still hoped at that point, I would have probably been even more explicit about it and even quicker and even more concerned about telling our users what to do. And from a product perspective, as with any product launch, especially one that you expect it and do in a week's time instead of three months' time, there are certain bugs that we had that we could have avoided. Yeah, I guess that's to be expected. But I must say, I must commend you. I mean, from a third-party perspective, right, I think you guys handled everything beautifully. I mean, obviously, you identified things that could have gone differently. But the fact that, for example, you're willing to pay for the delivery fees using your own marketing budget, for example, I think speaks volumes to how much you guys really decide to put consumers first and foremost and to really value their health and their experience. So I commend you for that. I'm really excited to see how you guys continue to grow over the next year and the next number of years. But at a very minimum, it was so wonderful chatting with you today, Alexandra. And I really appreciate all your time. Thanks a lot for having me, Tommy. Anytime. To all of our listeners, today's guest was Alexandra Kleeman, who was the head of marketing for Spock. Thanks again, Alexandra. It was, it was really, really wonderful. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for taking a break with us and listening to our weekly episode of Activate by Remerge. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. The more people you tell, the further we can spread these awesome mobile marketing insights. See you next week.